If you haven't already, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be in that the whole chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Uh, it starts on page 12 if you have one of our welcome table Bibles. This chapter is going to tie us back into some things from chapter 13, and it's going to prepare for coming in chapter 19. We won't get to chapter 19 until uh, the first Sunday in January. So uh, there'll be a little bit of a cliffhanger, so to speak, but I want to encourage you to read ahead, okay? Read that and, uh, and see what's coming um, with Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Abraham's nephew, uh, Lot. And, and once again, in this chapter, we're going to see God's power, God's faithfulness, God's loving compassion on display here. Now, it's almost as if in his grace to us, God organized his word so that we would see these things over and over and over again, is it not? God is graciously redundant. Graciously redundant. He's mercifully redundant. May we never grow tired or bored of this kind of redundancy. We're going to hear things we've already heard this morning, and my prayer is that as we hear them again, that we will be renewed both in our our. Uh, confidence in those things and our dependence upon those things. This chapter is going to pose two important questions about God that we, we can't get around. We've got to answer these. And the answers that we'll find here in the text, they're meant to draw us deeper into this confidence in Christ, this confidence in our God and this dependence upon him. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord for help and then we'll dig in. Father, we ask of you what our Lord Jesus asked of you in John chapter 17, that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. May we receive it as the truth that it is by the power of your Holy Spirit and be changed this morning more and more into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Several years ago, I was in a situation that brought me a lot of anxiety, Anybody ever been in a situation that's brought you a lot of anxiety? And I couldn't see any way to resolve it, right? I was getting really like frustrated and, and worried and it just kind of, it was, you could, it was taking a physical toll on me, right? And, and then I got this email from a friend of mine and, and he, um, he, he gave me this, this, uh, this truth that I never want to forget, okay? He said this in his email. He said, Eric, the Lord... He is exactly that. The Lord. He is exactly that. Now, my friend didn't offer me a solution to the problem that I had. Instead, what he offered me was a, the perspective that I needed. Right? That phrase, it's simple. It's easy to remember. The Lord. He is exactly that. But the perspective that that phrase gives us, that's a little bit harder to hold on to, isn't, isn't it? Today's passage is going to offer us a much-needed reminder of this perspective. The Lord, he is exactly that. This is what we're going to see this morning. So let's dig in. Chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servant's way. 
Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. And so Abraham hurried into the tent and he said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and, and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a, ten, a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. And then Abraham took curds and milk, as well as the calf that he had prepared, and he set them before the men, and he served them as they ate under the tree. This is now the third time in Genesis that we've seen the Lord appear to Abraham. And in this instance, the Lord's appearance is directly tied to these three men who are suddenly standing near Abraham's tent. This is shortly after uh, 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 what we just read about in in chapter 17, time-wise, okay? When we, got, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to learn that two of these men are angels. While the third man is never directly referred to as the angel of the Lord here, it seems from the rest of the passage that this third man is a manifestation of the Lord in some way. And so without going off into a, a rabbit trail on exactly how the Lord appeared to Abraham here, for now we just need to focus on the fact that the Lord has appeared to Abraham. And the whole chapter is the context of this appearance. It says in, cha- in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. In, in the, the appearance of the Lord 3, it says the Lord went up from Abraham. So everything in between there is the appearance of the Lord to Abraham, okay? So we're set on that. Abraham clearly understands the importance of these three men standing near him in connection to the Lord's appearance. And, and his words and his actions are reflective of that. He bows down to the ground, and after he bows down to the ground, he speaks to one of them directly, and he calls him, my Lord, in verse 3. Now, if you notice, the word Lord there is not in all caps. We've talked about this before. Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it's using God's name. It's God's name, Yahweh. It's not in all caps here. Abraham isn't using the Lord's name. He doesn't know that name. God says that in Exodus when he comes to Moses and says, I'll tell you my name. Abraham didn't know me as this. Isaac, Jacob didn't know me as this. Abraham's not using the Lord's name, but instead what he's doing here is he's acknowledging God as his master and himself as God's servant. He calls himself your servant, right? There's there's an honor being displayed here. His actions are an, an acknowledgement of that too. Did you feel Abraham's uh, urgency in, in, in the verbs that were being used here in these verses, right? When, when he wanted to show hospitality to these men, it says he ran to meet these men. He hurried to Sarah, and he told her to quickly make bread. He ran to the herd, and he found a choice calf, and he gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. There's an, there's an eagerness here in Abraham to serve these men because he knows that by doing so, he's serving the Lord. There's also a generosity in Abraham here as well. Notice in verse 3 that he said, let a little water be brought so that you can wash your feet and rest. Let a a bit of bread be brought, right? And then what does he do? He goes to tell Sarah to knead three measures of fine flour. Well, three measures, uh, using that their uh, system of measurement, three measures to us would be 21 quarts of flour. That's plenty of flour to make bread for three men. More than enough, right? And, and not only that, it's fine flour. It's not just any flour. It's fine flour. This is the best flour. This is the, the expensive flour for the bread. It's not cheap. These men who have come to visit Abraham will have the best 
bread, and they will have plenty of it, right? Abraham goes even further, and he picks one of his best calves in his herd, and he, and, he, uh, and he has it prepared for the men as well. He doesn't just bring them a little bit of water. He also brings them curds and milk. Abraham is going far above and beyond what he originally offered to these men. Let me give you just a little bit of water. Let me give you just a little bit of bread. He brings them bread from fine flour, the choice calf, curds, and milk. He's generous. Wouldn't you be if you knew that you were serving the Lord? Wouldn't you be generous? Wouldn't you be in a hurry? Wouldn't you be eager to serve the Lord if you knew that's what you were doing? It's difficult for us to maintain that kind of zealousness when we're serving in the church though, right? I think that we can all admit that there are times when we fail to make the connection between serving one another and serving the Lord, but we need to understand the church is now the physical manifestation of God in the world. His Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers. We are the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is made up of of people in whom his spirit dwells. And so whenever we do something in service to the people who make up Christ's body, we're doing that thing in service to Jesus himself, whether it's cleaning the building facilities, making coffee and greeting people, putting out communion cups, preaching the word, praying for one another, running sound and slides for music, singing, organizing curriculum and teaching Redeemer kids, keeping the books, providing meals and rides for one another, and on and on and on. We can grow tired and bored of doing these things when we fail to recognize God's presence with us in the midst of them. This is where we need grace, right? May our Lord continue to give us the grace to see ourselves as servants to him and to one another. Give us the grace that we need to see that we're serving him when we serve his people so that we may continue to serve with joy and zeal for his glory in his glory alone. Titus 2, 14, one of our foundational verses. He being Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Abraham's showing that kind of eagerness here as he serves these three men. He's not doing these things to earn God's favor. He's doing these things because he already has God's favor. Abraham's actions are a response of God's grace. You remember in chapter 15, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He already has that to what God has already given. He's working from that in response to what God has already given to him. His service is a reflection of the righteousness that God has credited to him through his faith in God's promise. In verse 8, it says that Abraham served them as they ate under the tree. In the Hebrew, it literally says he was standing by them. Standing by, okay? This is the sense. Abraham did not sit down to rest with them. He was on his feet, and he was ready to do whatever it was that they uh, would ask or need of him. This is the kind of eagerness that Titus 2.14 is describing. The Lord, he is exactly that. So may we serve him eagerly because he is the Lord who makes his presence known among us. Verse 8 notes that the men ate under, the, under a tree. Verse 1 tells us that that tree was one of the oaks at Mamre, of, of Mamre. Back in chapter 13, we saw that Abraham 
moved his tent there to these oaks of Mamre after he and Lot separated from one another. We're, we're also told in chapter 13 that Lot set up his tent near Sodom. And so by mentioning the oaks of Mamre here, the author's helping connect his readers back to those events of chapter 13, and he's preparing us for what's coming in chapter 19. He's, he's, he's setting us up here. But before we get to that, and, and actually we're going to see some of that in, in the, at the end of this chapter, but before we get there, our attention is first turned to Abraham's wife in the next set of verses. Look at verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. So picture the scene, okay? Three men sitting uh, under the tree, Abraham standing there facing them with his back to his tent. Sarah is just inside the, the entrance, out of sight, but she's within earshot of the conversation. Okay, you got that in your mind? Last week in chapter 17, we saw that God promised Abraham that God would bless Sarah and that she would have a son named Isaac who would inherit the covenant that God made with Abraham God, and through whom God would fulfill his promise to bless the nations. God told Abraham that, about, uh, uh, that, uh, that in about a year's time, Sarah would give birth to his promised son. And then here in verse 10, God reiterates that promise again. In about a year's time, Sarah will have this son. God has shared that with Abraham, but he hasn't shared that with Sarah. This is the first time she's hearing it. When Abraham heard that promise the first time, what did he do? He laughed. He laughed in disbelief, right? And when Sarah hears it for the first time, what does she do? She laughs. She laughs in disbelief as well. Moses is the author, remember, of Genesis. He's the primary author of Genesis and the Pentateuch. He wrote this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God knows what he's doing when he gives us his words. And the, the beauty of this, the, 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 the way that Moses records this here, it's genius. Okay, look, first in verse 11, he notes that Sarah and Abraham both were old and getting older. They're not getting any younger, right? That's the author's like commentary for us. And then he notes that Sarah has passed the age of childbearing. In the Hebrew there, it, it's pointing to the fact that she's literally experienced menopause and it's physically impossible for her to have children. And then he records Sarah's own acknowledgement of the same things. She laughs at the idea of having a baby at her age. She says she's worn out. Again, this is a physical impossibility and she points to Abraham's old age as well. And then Moses records Sarah's question in verse 12. After I'm worn out and my, child, and my Lord is old, talking about Abraham, will I have delight? In other words, can I really have a baby when I'm old? How can God promise something that's physically impossible? Verse 12 says that she laughed to herself, right? She's hidden just inside the, the entrance of the tent. She's quiet enough, she thought, so she thought, that nobody could hear. 
But because God is God and he knows all and he sees all and he hears all, guess what? God hears her. And he addresses her question with a question of his own. He says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Literally, the Hebrew says, is anything too wondrous for the Lord? The thought of having a baby in her old age, this was too wondrous for Sarah. It's too wondrous, but not for God. It was impossible in her mind, but not in the Lord's. She was thinking of her own inability, but God was declaring his own ability. Sarah was focused on the natural way, a way that was shut. God was showing her the supernatural way. The genius of God's question is that even though he's asking it to Abram and Sarah here, the rhetorical nature of that question forces us as we're reading it to have to answer that too. Is anything impossible for God? Is anything impossible for the Lord? has made a promise that Moses made it clear in this account that God has made a promise that no human being can fulfill. That's important. And it provokes the reader to wonder, has God made a promise here that, that even he can't keep? Is anything impossible for the Lord? This question forces us to deal with our own perspective on God's sovereignty and power here. Does God really govern all things? Or does he just try to coax people in the right direction and hope they'll choose his way on their own? We can find the answer right here in the text. Verse 10, the Lord says, I will, what? Certainly come back to you in about a year's time. And your wife Sarah, what? Will have a son. Verse 14, at the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Listen, it's not an appointed time if God can't keep the schedule, and God can't keep the schedule if he's not sovereign over all things. He is God Almighty. He gave us this name in chapter 17, El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2. He gives everyone life and breath and all things. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27 says, From one man, being Adam, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and he's determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that we might seek God, so that they might seek God, they being us, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. How do we reach out and find God? We do it through his son, Jesus Christ, who according to Romans 5 came at just the right time, a.k.a. the appointed time. While we were still helpless, while we, it was impossible for us to save ourselves, humanly impossible for us to save ourselves, while we were still sinners, it tells us in Romans 5, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, God made known the mystery uh, to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, a.k.a. the appointed time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, in him, before God formed the foundations of the world, uh, Ephesians 1, 4, he made a plan and he set a schedule so that at the appointed time, 
His promised son would come and give life to those who are spiritually dead by dying in their place and rising from the grave. But we need to understand this. We cannot get to the appointed time of that promised son if God is unable to keep the appointed time of the son he promised to Abraham and Sarah. Because it's through Isaac's family line that Jesus would come. Our salvation is dependent upon God's sovereign ability to keep his promises and stick to his schedule. The God who, according to Romans 4, in reference to Abraham and Sarah, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist, he is the God who will give life to Sarah's womb and bring into existence a son that could not exist apart from God's sovereign plan and power and will. And he's the God who gives new life to dead hearts and graces his children with the gift of faith when we had none of our own to give. And he showed his own sovereign power to do these things when he raised his own son, his one and only son from the dead and he brought life out of the dead tomb. Is there anything that is impossible for the Lord? Is there anything that you right now, think is impossible for the Lord. Anything that you think is too wondrous, that God is not in control of, then then look here. Look at what God is doing with Abraham and Sarah. Look at what he's done with Christ. Now, there actually is something that's impossible for God to do. It's impossible for God to lie. We're told this in his word in Numbers 23, 1 Samuel 15, Titus 1, Hebrews 6. It's impossible for God to lie. That means then what he has promised to do for Abraham and Sarah is what he will do for them. That means that what he has promised to do for you and me is what he will do for you and me. This should give us hope, right? Ironically, when the Lord called Sarah out on her laughter, she denied it and said, I did not laugh because she was afraid, right? I mean, there's something special about this this man who's talking to her here. She was afraid once she realized that, that he heard her in the tent. But listen, by saying that, by saying, I did not uh, laugh, she just called God a liar while at the same time, she herself was lying. This is why we need grace. Whenever we think there's something impossible for God to do, unless God tells us in his word that it's impossible for him to do, like lie. Let me press just a little bit. We're at risk of calling God a liar. But here's the the beauty of what God does and how he responds. The grace that he shows us God didn't take his promise back. He didn't kick her out of it. Because his promise isn't dependent on Sarah, it's dependent on himself. Instead, he revealed her sin by upholding the truth, and he upheld his promise because he's righteous, he's just, he's merciful. The Lord, he is exactly that. So we should trust him wholeheartedly because he can do what we can't. And he always keeps his promises. And because the Lord keeps his promises, 
He lets Abraham in on why he's really there. Look at verse 16. The men got up from there and looked over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is going to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Now, after the men finished eating under the tree, we get this hint uh, at the reason of why they actually came in verse 16 when it says they got up and they looked out over Sodom. And when we read that, that's meant to trigger our memory as those who've been reading through Genesis. It's meant to, to trigger our memory back to what was said about Sodom in chapter 13. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Same word. That gets reiterated here in verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is what? Immense. And their sin is extremely serious. They're evil. In verse 21, God says, I'll go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Now, we've seen this language enough now in Genesis to know that God does not need to go down and see or find out. He already knows. Just as he came into the Garden of Eden to inquire of Adam and Eve, just as he went down to the city of Babylon to look over the city and the tower that were, the humans were building, so here he's going down to Sodom and Gomorrah, not out of curiosity, but out of his righteousness to maintain justice where sin has occurred. And in his grace, God chooses to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do. Why? Because he's chosen Abraham to reflect his righteousness and justice and to teach future generations to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. This is how Abraham will become a great and powerful nation, not through tyranny, not through injustice, but through God-given righteousness and justice. And through the righteousness and justice that comes from the family line of Abraham, that is how God will bless the nations. And in his grace, God has revealed to us what he has done and what he will do. How has he done that? He's revealed it to us in his word. And through his word, we know that the blessing that he promised to bring to us through Abraham ultimately comes through the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness that we receive by believing that Jesus bore the just wrath, the righteous wrath, the proper wrath of God against us by dying in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. We've, we sing the song, that our sins, are, they are many. His mercy is more, right? Our sins, they're, they're immense. The outcry against us is justified. But God brought blessing and grace verse 20 and 21 reveal more of God's nature to us. He heard the cry of injustice that came up against Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, God hears every cry of injustice. 
He does not ignore it. So we can and we should call to him when we see it, when we hear it, when we experience it ourselves. He is righteous and just, and he will not ignore injustice. And because he is righteous and just, he examines things thoroughly before he makes his judgment. God is never flippant about the judgment that he passes, and he's always right. So if we who are made in his image and remade in in the image of Christ, if we who are, as he said, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, then it would also be wise for us to investigate matters thoroughly before rendering a judgment when cries of injustice are brought to our attention. And because God never renders an incorrect judgment, we ought to humbly and patiently seek the wisdom of his word and his spirit to help us understand and carry out what is right and just. After Abraham learns what God is about to do, he has this bold exchange with God that appears to be uh, irreverent at first. But ultimately, it reveals his confidence in the God who is, and, 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 or excuse me, in who God is, and invites us to see Abraham, or to see what Abraham sees and to do what Abraham does. Look at verse 22. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteousness and the wicked or the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, "If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake." Then Abraham answered, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And and then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, as Abraham approaches the Lord here and knows what's going to happen to Sodom, and he knows that his nephew Lot has moved over there, surely he has to be thinking about Lot and his family right now, right? If you knew disaster was coming upon the place where your family lived, they would be on your mind, right? He knows they live in Sodom. He knows God intends to bring judgment upon the city because of the extremely serious sin that is there, but, but uh, Abraham does not have Lot's righteousness is not the, the main focus for Abraham here in verse 23. Abraham has God's righteousness in view here. He says, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Abraham knows that God's judgment against Sodom is right, and he uses this opportunity to intercede for Lot and his family by appearing. And we talked about how justice, back in verse 14, God asked, is anything impossible for the Lord? And we talked about how it was impossible for God to lie. Here we see that it's also impossible for God to act in any way that is contrary to his character and nature. It would be unjust for God to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And because God is just, he couldn't possibly do that. He could not possibly do what is unjust. And so Abraham asks, won't the judge, the just judge? We sang that in one of our songs. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on us and pardon him, or to, to look on him and pardon me. That's way better, right? Abraham is appealing to the justice of God. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? As we read through that, did you feel the tension there? Like, like every time Abraham asks God another question, you want to be like, Abraham, bro, you need to stop, right? Like, you're going to keep going. How, how far do you want to press your luck? Like, quit now, right, while you're ahead. But look at the humble posture with which Abraham asks these questions to the Lord. He, over and over again, he calls God, my Lord, just like he did back in verse 3. And in verse 27, Abraham acknowledges that he is dust and ashes before the judge of the whole earth. He acknowledges, you're the creator, I'm the created. I have no right to be here, and yet you've given me your ear. So in humility, Abraham asks God this series of hypothetical questions in order to be reassured, in order to appeal to God's justice. You are who you say you are. Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And God's answer is clear. He will not. He will not. Because he is just. This should encourage us as those who are now righteous in Christ on the cross. On. It's past. Jesus took it for us on the cross. Not only will God not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, but he will also spare the wicked on account of the righteous, whether he finds 50 righteous people in the city or 10, because he's merciful. And he's gracious. Now, it's not entirely clear why Abraham stops at 10, but this countdown begs the question, if we just keep going, what will God do if he finds no one righteous in the city? What will he do if he finds no one righteous in the city? He'll condemn it. He'll condemn the wicked to judgment because he is righteous and just. And the cry that's come up against the city and their immense sin is justified. Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous, not even one, not just in the city of Sodom, but in the whole world. Now we're on a global scale. And because everyone is under sin, everyone is subject to God's righteous judgment, his good and proper and just uh, judgment. But, but as God has shown Abraham, he's willing to spare the wicked on the account of the righteous. And yet because he is the judge of the whole earth and does what is right and just, he cannot leave sin and wickedness unpunished. You see the tension that's created there? 
That means that in order for us not to be punished for our sin, our guilt must first be removed. And in order for our guilt to be removed, somebody else has to take our punishment. God's mercy cannot come at the expense of his justice. He cannot leave sin unpunished. It's Christmas time. And we sing songs about the world. Long lay the world. Sin and error pining. Darkness. Void of righteousness. Only wickedness could be found. And so what, what did God do? God brought righteousness into the world by putting on human flesh and entering the world that he created. By the power of his spirit, he opened the womb of another woman, even though it was physically impossible for her to conceive a child because she was still a virgin. She gave birth to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the promised one. And, and yet when he came into the world, John 1 tells us, into the world that he created, he found no hospitality there, no one eager to serve him. He came to his own people. He was born into a Jewish family, circumcised on the eighth day, according to Abraham. And yet his own people did not receive him. In their unrighteousness, they failed to trust him. They rejected his claims to be God and his righteous teachings. They did not keep the way of the Lord because they overlooked the Lord himself. And in haste, they unjustly arrested and condemned him, sweeping away the righteous one with the unrighteous as he hung on a cross between two thieves. But it was through the death of this righteous one that God would spare the whole world, that is, people from every tribe and nation who put their hope not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and salvation from God's righteous wrath that they deserve. Because of Christ's intercession, all who place their trust in him and him alone will find mercy instead of punishment from the judge of the whole earth. This is really, really, really good news. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. We read Romans, further into Romans 8. 30, 31, 32, somewhere in there for our prayer time. God is the one who, just, who, who uh, judges. Who's he that condemns? If God, the one... If you're in Christ, that's the promise. Doesn't condemn us, who else can? If you're in Christ, that's the promise. The one who has the right to judge you has pardoned you in his son. If you're not in Christ, I pray that you would heed the threat that God is giving here, the warning that he's giving as he goes to Sodom. But I also pray that you would heed the call of mercy to see that that's grace, that God would show us his plan, that he's showing us that without him, we can, it's impossible, it's impossible for us to save ourselves. So why not cry out to the one who hears, to the one who redeems, the one who forgives, the one who saves. As those who've been credited with righteousness along with Abraham, we have the joy. 
We, we have the joy to humbly and persistently venture to speak to the Lord on behalf of those who we know who remain under his judgment, to pray for, that he would spare the wicked on, the account of, on account of the righteous, not on account of our righteousness, but on account of Christ's righteousness. We can and we should regularly intercede with prayer on behalf of our unsaved friends and family and appeal to God's justice and his mercy, asking him to do what is impossible for man but not impossible for God, to save those who deserve his judgment and condemnation. So keep praying. Maybe you've prayed for a long time for someone and, and there's just no movement, feels like. God hears your cries. God and God alone saves. Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. Approach the throne of grace, as Hebrews tells us, with boldness, not chest puffed out, but in humility, confident that God is who he says he is. Because Jesus sits there at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We saw that in Romans 8 too. As well, I mean. And when we get there to the throne of grace, when we come and we pray, you know what we find? Help in our time of need. That's what Hebrews promises us. Mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The Lord, he is exactly that. So we should approach him humbly because he judges rightly and yet he offers mercy. How amazing is that? We should trust him wholeheartedly because he can do what we cannot do. And he always keeps his promises. We should serve him eagerly because he's the Lord who makes his own promise known among us. Through the appointed intercession of his own promised son of righteousness, the judge of the whole earth made it possible for wicked sinners to be spared from his judgment and live forever in his presence. Is he not worthy of all glory and honor and praise because of that? The Lord, he is exactly that. May we never lose that perspective. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are Lord. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you've revealed your plan to us in grace that we might find you, believe you, and be saved. Thank you that you've sent your son to us. He was born to die so that we might have life. Father, we pray as we go this day and the rest of this week, we pray for daily reminders that the Lord, he is exactly that. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.